Welcome to The Coda, a music podcast that's also the perfect end to your week. I'm Brian Hasty, and with me is the future to my Drake, the ace to my bass, Rob Christofferson. Rob, how are you? You know, I'm good, Brian. I'm good. We, they predicted we were going to get an ice storm, and we, we didn't. It just totally blew everybody's minds. Everybody was freaking out, and then it was too warm to get an ice storm. It was great. See, the, the problem slash gift is that you and I live in a very, very, uh, like, we live close enough to each other that we share a weather system, so it's kind of the same thing here. We were afraid of losing power. We did not. It was just dirty and slushy for a while. It's fine. We survived, man. We survived the almost ice storm of uh, 2020. <laughs> uh, will you be making a banner to commemorate this? I'm going to get on paint right after we're done recording, and I'm going to make this happen. I really like that idea. I would love to see an MS Paint competition. I wish there was a Mac equivalent pre-installed on my laptop, but there isn't. I will somehow deal much in the same way uh, that I will more seriously deal with the loss of Rush Drummer Neil Pert. Do you think you can hash a plan to have your bike run over and somehow get your hands on a blank check and use a Macintosh computer to somehow get a million dollar payout? (laughs) Uh, I think that's called insurance fraud. Uh, I am down for it. I'm cool. Let's do this. Yeah, I think uh, 2020 insurance fraud all the way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let us get into our first topic of this episode, which is a Pitchfork article I linked to you all about how the music industry uh, hits a milestone uh, uh, last year with over a trillion song streams. A trillion. Trillion, baby. Trillion! Sorry, sorry, I apologize. 1.15 trillion. Yeah, yeah, not just one trillion, a trillion and a half. 15% more than a trillion. Yes. Oh, no, sorry. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so, yeah, it's kind of crazy. Uh, 2018, 887.4 billion streams. And this is mostly, you know, uh, thanks in part to streaming services, right? Uh, of course, there's some negligible amount of uh, physical media being bought. But as we discussed, I think it was last episode, it's mostly digital. And it's mostly here to stay. Yeah. Can't stop. Won't stop. 2020. Streaming's bigger than ever, baby. A, a lot of the... Um, uh, uh, people you think would be on this list are right. So you know, people like your friend and mine, Post Malone. Yeah, he's a rock star. He was a rock star in the last decade. Uh, <laughs> totally freaking bringing it this year. Ariana Grande, Little Nas X, Billie Eilish, too. You know, it's uh, you're just all hanging out. Taylor Swift getting in the in the four Bs, the four billions. You know, it's a nice number right there. So I actually dug through the uh, the Nielsen report that was linked through uh, the article that we are linking to. That's a lot of words to say all at once. All that to say in the country section, I uh, found an interesting stat I wanted to share with you. Uh, seventy four million first week streams for Luke Combs's "What You See Is What You Get" and seventy four million first week streams as well as physical purchases. Uh, mostly, mostly streams though. The man's unstoppable. He is a force. He is, he's the new Garth Brooks. Like, there's no way to look past that. The crazy thing about that, though, and I was doing some more digging, is that his 2017 album, This One's For You, sold 1.163 million units in 2019. Who sells over a million units these these Not days? Not a ton of people. No, th- Not a ton of people. No, and especially in country? Are you kidding me? Nobody sells that. Except for Luke Combs. So the crazy thing is that uh, Luke Combs' record is the highest ever for a country star for the 74 million first week streams. 
Hot damn. I know. Fucking A. Yeah, he is he's on pace to become the new, more relatable Garth Brooks. <laughs> the one that doesn't dress as nice on the stage and doesn't have, you know, 50-foot-long banners with a lowercase g on it. That's okay. I could deal with that. But he, the man's unstoppable. Are the banners the something that you want in your life? Like, when you go see a country superstar like Garth Brooks, do you want those banners in your face? If it's somebody that can draw a fairly large amphitheater maybe you know do a sold out show at madison square garden i need the banners i need that big experience <laughs> no banners no rob exactly <laughs> i'm i'm not showing up for that matchbox 20 just announced a tour and i'm kind of hoping you know the big banner <laughs> the makes big, a comeback this year the, yeah the, what is it the uh uh the mt 2020 banner yes yes perfect uh <laughs> rob i have a bit of trivia for you yeah um, who is the only artist to have three top-selling albums this decade? The only artist to have three top-selling albums this decade. Yeah. Um, I'll give you a quick hint. Okay. You've already mentioned them. I've already mentioned yes, them? Yes, and it's not Matchbox 20. It's not Matchbox 20. <laughs> it's your first go-to, no. Um, uh, Taylor Swift? Correct. Ah, Taylor Swift is the only artist to have three titles in the top 10 for the uh, decade. So uh, 1989 sold 6.2 million, Speak Now sold 4.7, and Red sold 4.5 million. Damn. I know that. I thought that was kind of interesting. That is kind of interesting. Good to see there's stuff out there selling. <laughs> I like that. I do like that. Um, and this is the perfect segue into the next thing I want to talk about. But at the end of um, the report, uh, they had stated that vinyl now represents 26% of all physical sales in 2019, with 18.8 million units sold throughout the year compared to 54.8 million units of CDs. So people are still buying CDs, but vinyl mm -hmm. is a quarter of those sales, which is kind of crazy. It is. And that number doesn't take into consideration what uh, artists are selling at their own shows. Exactly. So, you know, the number's higher than that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, which leads me to the next article I linked you to, which is a Stereogum article about the 10 best-selling vinyl albums of the last decade. Uh, kind of surprising a little bit. Yes, um, but but I have a, a good equivalent for this. So uh, uh, let, you want me to run down this list? Sure, let's do this. Yes. Okay. So, yes, the top-selling albums of the decade. Number 10, Lana Del Rey, Born to Die. 283,000 units. Number nine, Miles Davis, Kind of Blue, 286,000 units. Number eight, Fleetwood Mac, Rumors, 304,000 units. And uh, number seven, The Beatles, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, with 313,000. Number six, Michael Jackson's Thriller, 334,000 units, although they added an extra zero on this uh, post, which I enjoyed. Come on, Saragum. Uh, yeah, get your shit together. Um, number five, Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, 351,000 units. Number four, Bob Marley and the Whalers, Legend, 364,000 units. Number three, Soundtrack to Guardians of the Galaxy, Awesome Mix, Volume 1, 367,000 units. Number two, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, 376,000 units. And number one... <laughs> That's a trouble. <laughs> the Beatles, Abbey Road, 558,000 units. Wow. So on yeah. vinyl alone, Abbey Road would have earned another silver plaque. Or gold, sorry, I apologize. Yeah. Yes, gold. Um, it earns platinum in uh, Canada, if, that, if we were talking Canadian numbers, I know. It's like, it's 
kind of weird. You know, you you guys like platinum in Canada, bringing it like a tenth yeah. of what we're doing. <laughs> well, I mean, also uh, population wise, it's pretty much the equivalent, yeah, right? I, so, I if we had I if we had over three hundred million people living here and we had the same numbers, yeah, that's that's a conversation to have. Right. Right. So, Rob, this list is very interesting in that. Um, hmm, how do I put this nicely? Uh, if you were uh, 18 to 22 and you love to smoke weed, you probably bought one of these. Oh, yeah, 100%. And uh, uh, we, I kind of brought this up in our DMs. Uh, I am an avid shopper at Target, and this list reflects exactly what they carry in stock at Target for vinyl. Really? Well, then. Yes. Yes. Um, every single one of these albums is available at Target. So, tar- and and in fact, like they carry such a small selection, it's really no surprise that you know this list looks like it's yeah. So you're saying it's a, it's almost a, a, an analogous one to one, yeah, pretty much. And it, and like again, this doesn't take into consideration what the like indie shops are selling. You know, I've the last year, no, 2018, uh, I went into a used vinyl shop, bought a. Really decent condition copy of uh, Bob Dylan's The Times They Are Changing. And I'm sure that didn't get counted in sales. So, uh, yeah. Um, it's your fault for buying what's already there. I know, man. <laughs> I know. It was calling to me, though. Um, so what you're sort of suggesting here is that the uh, vinyl buyer, uh, you know, um, and I'm talking about Target's vinyl buyer, right? The person who selects the in-store stock uh, holds untold sway in the, uh, the vinyl album uh, sales rankings. Yeah, 100%. And the biggest giveaway for that is the uh, Guardians of the Galaxy right. soundtrack. <laughs> um, very <laughs> quickly, I was looking at the uh, the track listing. Um, you know, it, it's kind of surprising to think that uh, uh, a cover of, uh, or sorry, a version of Hooked on a Feeling and, uh, you know, Norman Greenbaum's uh, Immortal Spirit in the Sky would somehow end up being the third best-selling uh, literal record of the last decade. I'm pretty sure the only reason that people bought that album was for Redbone. That is the only yeah, for reason, sure. Probably. Especially if you see it on yeah. sale. Yeah. Like, how many more copies of Escape the Pina Colada song do you really need? Not that many. So, do you think this also sort of speaks to a um, uh, 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 boomer slash uh, younger generation, like a, maybe like a you know uh, a Gen Xer who recently discovered that you can get like a USB uh, turntable? Yeah, very possibly. I mean. The nice thing about Target is that they actually sell a portable turntable that you can buy. They sell Crosley's there, so there you the go. new entry level way of getting into record collecting. Yep, because yeah, you look at this list. The I mean, like the the standards there: Beatles, Pink Floyd, Bob Marley, uh, Michael Jackson, Fleetwood Mac, Rumors. If you don't at least one copy of Rumors, are you even real to me? No, you you're not. You're less a human being and more a monster. So I guess this is our tip of the uh, millennium. Go out there, get yourself a new copy of Rumors, an old copy of Rumors, any copy of Rumors, really. It, it's mind blowing to think that the only album that has new music on it is Lana Del Rey. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, uh, like Amy Winehouse, but that was recorded, uh, you know, in the aughts, right? So that doesn't really count for the last ten years. No. Yeah, it's kind of surprising, too. Uh, anyways, something interesting, I guess, we'll continually watch over and over as uh, the years progress. But uh, uh, interesting nonetheless, the old guard is still there with some new incursions in the way. Uh, let us talk about something that you had mentioned uh, uh, before about how we're in the DMs a lot. And you and I got into a whole conversation about your friend and mine, Thomas Rhett, country superstar Thomas Rhett. Brian, 
we had a deep philosophical conversation, <laughs> and it, it veered into I I just like I I posed a really honest question to you, and I said, "Will Thomas Rhett remember Brian Hasty Young?" And you know, you you had some really sentimental thoughts about it. We uh, we went deeper, and we. We have a new code of challenge. We definitely we do. Issue. We definitely do. Because the thing is, you and I discussed uh, uh, accepting a hug from Thomas Rhett, what that would be like. But more importantly, what does Thomas Rhett smell like? Yes. What does the man smell like? Does he smell like Tim McGraw's cologne? I want to know. <laughs> does he use Tim McGraw's cologne? Does he go something a little more upscale? Because, you know what? I got Timmy's cologne. It's not bad. It's not bad. I dig You know, it. does he smell like home? Like a house? You know? Does he smell like ashes? Um, it smells like, you know, you were reticent to drink that third beer, but you did, and now you're living with the consequences, <laughs> but you know what? You're the life of the party, too, and people are attracted to what you have to say, and you don't feel any shame about it. That's about the perfect, uh, you know, way I can relate that to you. I love the idea of a realistic contextual cologne. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what country music brings to the table is a realistic experience every time you're listening to it. You want to feel like you're in the South. You want to feel like you're um, on a dirt road on a Friday night. Uh, I mean, I can't. we can't do that around here now. It's too damn cold, but you know what? People in the South can do that every goddamn Friday, and I, I want to experience that. I want to know... What the dirt road experience is like in January down in Georgia or something. So, Rob, I have this mental image of you spraying a little bit of cologne on, you know, the uh, the lights are off in the bedroom, the door slightly yep. ajar. You're dancing with yourself for five to eight minutes, but no longer. But you're just in that moment in time. You are living a life much like Tim Gross. Yeah, this is uh, I'm going to do that later. This is the best aggression I think we've ever had here on the podcast, by the way. Just I want to throw that one out there. So then we got 100%. to talking, like, how do we figure out what Thomas Rhett smells like? Uh, how do you get in contact, right, with someone you do not know who is famous? How does that work? How would you do that? We're asking people to tweet at us. What is your best suggestion on how we could reach out to Thomas Rhett to find out how what, what he smells like? Not in a creepy way, just in a, like a, a wondrous kind of way, like a daydream kind of way. I think we need to paint him the hypothetical scenario that we want the hug. Yes, yeah. And we need to know... You know, schematics here in terms of, of smell. We know that Thomas Red is five foot ten, and I tell you, Thomas Red does not look five foot ten. I dropped that. Did did he look five foot ten no. when you so saw, I saw him? I saw him last April, and he he's a man of uh, uh, a tinier stature, right? So it was kind of surprising to learn that he was that tall. I was super convinced he was shorter than that. Yeah, I have the same feeling about uh, Cole Swindell when I saw him uh, twenty. 15 he looked very diminutive now i need to check this so we're gonna go to the google machine so i'll vamp while you do this so uh, yeah. uh the monsters of folk album exists right jim james etc etc right what if we had the tiny mm-hmm. men of country oh fuck that would be <laughs> that would be gangbusters man. thomas Rhett, colson now like who else can we throw in there i'm trying to figure out who else we can throw in there we'll have to do like the shortest superstars in country yeah that, that it'll be it'll be amazing um 
So Cole Swindell is five feet eleven inches tall, and um, what the fuck? I'm older than Cole Swindell. This is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> All kinds of revelations here on uh, episode four of the uh, the Coda podcast. Rob, are you okay? You want to talk about it? Uh, no, no. Okay. Um, no. Uh, no. So yes, to bring this back to the Coda challenge, go ahead and tweet us at the Coda podcast. Let us know how does one get in touch with a famous person like Thomas Rhett? We just want to hang out with him. You know, maybe get a hug. Maybe, perhaps. We appreciate his artistry. Maybe a shoulder touch. Oh, okay. The power of the shoulder touch is very palpable i man i bet you i could tear up a little bit maybe if he included a kind word or if he he like if he had a baseball cap on like he often does and he just tips it at you yeah yes. yeah is he that. wearing it forward though is he wearing it backwards? football dad energy right here <laughs> this is this is definitely what's going on uh so yeah let's let's find <laughs> out what these guys are. anyone knows Ryan. actually i don't know stalkers like weird country superstar stalkers <laughs> Uh, let us quickly move on then, in that case, to the last story that I wanted to cover in the news section here. Um, and it is a uh, the idea of uh, members of a longstanding band reuniting without their major member, right? So very recently, Nirvana members Dave Grohl and Pat Smear and everyone else uh, got together alongside St. Vincent and Beck to cover a uh, five-song set of uh, of classic Nirvana tunes, as well as a cover, which we'll get into in a bit, which I think is kind of weird. But uh, anyways, uh, Jenner Forth, Los Angeles, California, Dave Grohl, Chris Novoselic, and Pat Smear were joined on stage by Beck and St. Vincent for a short five-song reunion. Did you uh, happen to watch any of this? You know, I didn't. I uh, I just never got around to it. But, like, I think part of it is that... Nirvana exists in a certain headspace for me. Like, for a long time, you know, Nirvana strictly sounded like Nevermind to me. Um, I, it's never really sounded like In Bloom uh, or uh, anything on In Utero or, or anything like that. But, um, not, like, to me, the, the quintessential nirvana and the only nirvana that will survive in my head is nirvana unplugged and i suppose this is as close as i'll get and i'm sure i'll you know watch it soon but uh yeah no i just i can't bring myself to do it yet. it's funny i've been trying to articulate how i feel about nirvana because they're like the really the the ground zero of a lot of um uh musical feelings for me as a teenager i guess because as you and i discussed we both listened to 99.9 the buzz uh as teenagers mm -hmm. and really like that's some of the first music that i ever got exposed to on my own that wasn't like part of uh my parents turning the radio on right this was me choosing to turn the radio on myself and listening to a lot of this and so to me it feels weird to hear nirvana in 2020 i feel like i'm not necessarily sick of it but i'm i'm past that point of connecting to it it's kind of like uh, in that in I think the last episode we talked about songs that should not be covered, and you mentioned "Stairway to Heaven," and I think Nirvana's reached that peak level. And I think for me, it started when they were beginning to be played on classic rock radio. It's just like when they made the transition over. Yeah, yeah it's just like the death of my youth right now and i can't handle that <laughs> yeah i feel like a lot of the bands of of their ilk during that time period like soundgarden for example i still have a bit of a tough time listening to these days is, um you know 20 years on because of the fact yeah I've, I've created that distance there and it's it's kind of the idea of generationally i kind of it's not as an, an essential of of a type of music that i want to listen to anymore necessarily it's a music of a certain age and for a lot of people a certain time period and 
I think it's always going to be firmly planted there. Like it's whereas like a band like Pearl Jam or even Stone Temple Pilots, they can they've like transitioned out of that for me, but like Nirvana's always going to be my late teen like state of mind for the most part. And like I I don't think I could totally even relate to their music, but I could relate to how people could feel that way and how friends, you know, were in situ- situations like that with divorced parents and all that. For sure. And, yeah. I also think there's like this emotional sort of um, like, I don't want to say parasitic, but a symbiotic relationship that you attach to music too, right? So listening to certain kinds of music that you don't necessarily listen to on a regular basis kind of attaches those feelings to that of a, a longer time period gone by. Right. Interestingly enough, reading a book uh, right now, 33 and the third book, you know which one it is, and I'm not going to spoil it just yet, but uh, the author of that book tries to explore why our teenage years are so formidable in terms of um, the music that we explore and the music that we often return to, because it is more often than not from our teenage years. So uh, apparently music in our teenage years is often linked with uh, self-discovery and all that good fancy stuff. So it's often music that you return to and music that defined you and continues to define you even years later. So it kind of reminds me of that Chris Rock quote about how like the, the best music of your life is, t- is tied to like your, um, sexual awakening, right? I don't know if you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about, where it's like that five years yep. kind of in between. And I find it kind of interesting because a lot of that music I've sort of like walked away from for whatever reason, um, be it uh, exhaustion, right? Like you can only hear the same song so many times. And I think that like your point about Stairway as well as like, uh, you know, uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit for me, I think I've just been like a little overplayed in my mind, even the context within I listen to it, which is probably listening to Nevermind as a whole. But I think that like it's sort of interesting to unpack um, those like very hormonal feelings that you tie to these sounds. I've definitely transitioned into uh, maybe uh, how do I define that? Like I don't go back to a lot of the music I listened to in my teens anymore, just because my tastes have shifted so radically. Like yeah, I still listen to alternative music. Sure, I'll take. Oasis is what's the story morning glory out every now and then and it's still a banger record still the best record in my mind at least that uh, they ever released and like okay I can kind of reconnect with this okay um different feelings now but like I don't feel drawn to it like I did when I was a teenager same with um what the hell was I listening to as a teenager at least around the time I got my first CD player. So, no doubt, um, Shania Twain, which is a weird inclusion there. Um, <laughs> well, not really. Hormones. I mean, you just you just list off I, No Doubt, right? So, Yeah. Well, I mean, hormones, man. What are you going to do? I had a poster of Shania Twain on my wall. <laughs> you really are the honorary Canadian. It's kind of insane. It is. It, it really is. Uh, I don't know, man. Uh my heart will always return to Canada and their and your wonderful artists. <laughs> it's funny, like just circling back to what you were just saying. Like, uh, if I were to tell like sixteen year old Brian that he's into modern country, I think he'd be very confused. 
like very confused. I first started listening to country in 1999. I remember that moment distinctly because it was New Year's Eve. I was done with the buzz for a little bit, and I'm like, I need something new. And the only other thing that we had was the country station, Y106.3. And uh, it was kicking country back in the day, Brian. <laughs> kicking country. That's how we did it. And the the one song I remember uh, probably more distinctly than any of the others is uh, George Strait. There's a George Strait song. I can't remember the actual title to it at the moment, but uh, I remember just listening to it and like, you know, this isn't half bad. This is going to be my closet obsession for a while. <laughs> and suddenly here you are revealing everything to everyone. Yeah. Uh, no stone unturned. I am revealing as much as I can. Uh, and also will be dancing by myself. <laughs> for five to eight later. minutes. <laughs> yeah, five to eight. We can't go beyond that because it's going to weird me out. So. Uh, so very quickly, and this is not for Eric, but do you uh, do you get 96.5 Wild Country? No, no okay, I don't. Perfect. That's what I figured. I didn't know if it was like within your range or not. No, we have one oh two point something. Okay, because okay, exactly, that's the only but... kind of country we get, but it's only when you're in the car and like away from the city. The city? What does the city have against country? It, that's what I'm wondering, right? Uh, I shout yeah. out to my sister who lives sort of like um, on the western edge of, of Montreal and gets it all the time, and I'm very envious of her. I would be too. I mean, man, I guess I could listen to it on the internet, but that kind of defeats the purpose. It does. Like, uh, internet radio, like, it never really caught on for me. Like, if you have, if, you know, if you have an office job, it's easy to do. But, like, why when I can control what I want to listen to because I have a subscription to Spotify? Yeah, I let the algorithm decide what my playlist looks like too. Yeah, let the algorithm control my life. <laughs> Insert the Terminator theme right here. Rob, I think <laughs> it's time to get to the main uh, uh, subject of our of our episode. How does that sound? Sounds good, man. As many of you know, there are situations in which you cannot contain an artist, right? So an artist has to create. They must create. And when it comes to music, sometimes it has to be done outside of the confines and the comfort zone uh, that you would get from your day gig or your regular job, your, you know, the, the bigger band. You know, side projects, as well as supergroups in some cases, have often allowed musicians to explore different genres, push forward ideas that would have otherwise died in the main band's environment, and generally just scratch that eternal itch to create that sometimes you just need to fulfill. The last few decades have included some incredible bands such as Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Derek and the Dominoes, Temple of the Dog, Velvet Revolver, Audio Slave, uh, and, you know, all of these bands have put out works of note. And this mighty tradition continues upwards and onwards as the decades continue. So, Rob, today we'll be talking about side projects. Um, in some cases, supergroups, I feel like we'll probably be touching on those, too. Um, so, uh, my pick for fave side project is Tommy Lee's Methods of Mayhem, most famously known for their song Get Naked. Wow. No, 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 no I'm, kidding, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm uh, kidding. <laughs> I was going to say, you went bold, man. <laughs> uh, Rob, I want to start with you, and I want to open with a question. Why isn't your pick the three tenors? I thought about it, and then I was like, no, that's, that's, people will be expecting that from me. Like, <laughs> yes. it's the safest choice Noted that you Placido could Noted Placido Domingo Stan, Rob. <laughs> yeah, no, um, my choice is, it's, I think in hindsight it would be 
a side project. It wasn't at first because it was these two artists first release of anything into the mainstream. So, um, before I arrived at this, I kind of racked my brain as to what I wanted to include here. Uh, the one project that really stuck out and it kind of shares a same line with this one and the fact that it was like one of the first releases from most of the members of that band as uh, Temple the Dog just because of how phenomenal that record is, how emotive that record is, and just how great it was for the time. The album I have chosen is Most Def and Tyler Kweli are Black Star. Wow, that's a great pick. I did not see that coming. No, and like this is the first release from either of these artists. They came out of the underground scene in New York. They were from Brooklyn. And what you what you get on this album is a socially conscious record that manages not to bring you down by listening to it. It's it's positive in the way that it covers things. It doesn't weigh you down the way that a record like this should be. It was released, you know, in the wake of Tupac and Biggie being shot and uh one of the most one of the the best songs from this album, Definition, uh the, the chorus, it's one of the hookiest and catchiest choruses uh on any rap album I've ever heard and it's uh you know, I said one, two, three, it's kinda dangerous to be an MC. They shot Tupac and Biggie, too much violence in hip hop. You know, it's uh listening to Definition, it's one of the most incredible hip hop songs of the last two decades and it still stands the test of time and I think what makes this album timeless is the fact that it didn't receive mainstream appeal. And I think for the most part, while most deaf, you know, it's not like he was a complete unknown. I don't think his albums, like, for a lot of people, hit, like, a mainstream audience. They were very... Uh, the The best way to describe his music, at least to me, is that as much as it would be comfortable to hear it from a stage, it would also be you could also hear it from a coffee house. It felt that intimate and that comforting, that ability to let you in and be in this space for a little while and feel the downs, but know that there's some ups in there too. And I think most Steph brings that to the table on Black Star. And I think Tylib Kweli brings like the, um, the production aspect to it because in his albums, he's definitely got a bigger production style. It's a little more upbeat and that dynamic really makes this album endure it's timeless the uh, instrumentation doesn't sound dated the messages on this album don't sound dated it's very socially conscious over two decades later and i don't necessarily know if that's a good thing but 
it's still there. Yeah. And it's still enjoyable and it's always going to be enjoyable and it's never going to feel old. I think that's one of those records that took forever to, for like critics, especially to catch up on rightly because it came out in 98 and then, you know, for a little while it kind of blew up on the other ground and then like only within the last like 15 years. So like six, seven, eight years after its release were people placing it on like best of lists of the decade of, of the nineties and of just in general, right. In terms of like, um, uh, you know, uh, conscious hip hop, yeah, it's so easy to write revisionist history years later and say that this was amazing and that certain albums don't get celebrated in their time. Like, In the Airplane Over the Sea never got celebrated in its own time, but that didn't really matter because of the fatalistic nature of uh, Neutral Milk Hotel. They didn't last long after that. Um, but... I think the exciting thing is, is that we're finally getting a follow-up to that this year. Yes. Well, in theory this year, but you never know how that's going to go. (laughs) Yeah. Right. True. I mean, the album's done. It's just waiting release. And God damn it. If you're listening to this, please release it this year. I need it. I I need it. it, 2020. If you're an American and and (laughs) it's 2020, you need music like this in your life. I would also love it if J Electronica could figure out when to drop an album because it's been like a decade now, bro. Yeah, fucking A, dude. <laughs> Get the fuck on it. The only reason I was thinking about that is because they have a, a song together, I think, from like 10, 11 years ago. I can't remember what it is, but they have a song together, so that made me think of that. Um, but yeah, yeah this I is... that's 2011. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a great pick. I think that like, um, it's really interesting that you say that it's still um, very resonant, I guess, like culturally speaking in terms of, of the lyrics and, you know, and I don't know whether that's a great or a a bad thing in terms of like where we are as a society, especially like talking about like North America, right? It reminds me of when the drive-by truckers released the song, what it means. And that was an album that came out in 2016 leading up to the presidential election. And it's a very socially conscious record. Uh, Patterson Hood wrote what it means in 2012, not long after Trayvon Martin was shot, and they released it in 2016, and one of the things that he said in interviews is how sad that it still feels prescient at that moment. It still feels relevant, and it's the same old story over and over again, and like, while that is never a good thing, it's good that people can take refuge in something like an album to bolster you past moments like right. that. I think it's an interesting kind of way of, of framing it. Like it's, you know, it's music to soothe you almost. Right. I, I'm not putting it in the greatest context, but you need to go listen to Black Star put it on and you will notice like right up front while um, the, the dynamic between the two, they never step on each other's toes. They know how to give each other space. They know when to let the other person do what they're doing and how, you know, and because they know how good they are, what they do, but how two guys could 
really make a socially conscious record that didn't bring you down, which yeah. is a very rare thing. I mean, I think you've described half of like the punk and hardcore scene for the last like 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's easy to, you know, provide uh, problems, but it's harder to sort of come up with solutions, especially through music. And I think that um, in this instance with this record, I think there are some very interesting um, um, solutions being suggested probably. When you look at the past decade, and you look at maybe like pure comedy, that album is depressing as fuck. While it's not prescribing you anything to to fix the problem, Father John Misty can identify the problems. Right. But he can't he he's very obviously can't give you the solutions. Yeah. And he can fully admit that in the music and like and I think that's why I haven't listened to pure comedy in probably since it came out. Like, I can't devote myself to that kind of headspace. I think it asks so, for a lot in certain cases, right? Like, it, it, it does. It 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 asks for you to mire yourself in the in the world that that album is set in, and get beat the fuck out of for a while. <laughs> Yeah, like uh, 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 the very definition of sad bastard music. Yeah, and I can't, I, and like that's too sad bastard for me. And I understand what that means when I say it. Like, I'm the sad bastard guy of this podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that's a that's a good definition. And I'm I, as we suggested, I'm the guy who probably would have worn a backwards baseball cap for way too long. So I know, man, but you know what. You gotta be you. Yeah. you gotta <laughs> I gotta be do you. me. Uh, speaking of that, I'm gonna talk about my pick now. If that's okay with you, do it, man. Do it up. Uh, bring it. Bring up the mood a little bit. <laughs> <here. laughs> I chose a, a a band that formed in New Orleans in 1991. They are also a super group of sorts, and uh, they put out a couple albums, a couple of EPs. They're touring actually on um, the 25th anniversary of their inaugural album. It is a band that I, uh, funnily enough, kind of ties into what I was talking about before with Nirvana, but I wasn't listening to them as much, so I haven't um, uh, tired of them as much. And um, it's a band named Down, all capital, and it's uh, Phil Anselmo, the singer of Pantera, Pepper Keenan of Corrosion of Conformity, Jimmy Bauer and Kirk Winstein of Crowbar. Um, their 1995 album, NOLA, is a masterpiece. Basically, the entire conceit of the band is Sabbath meets Southern Rock. Yeah, that's a that's a fair assessment. I agree. And uh, you know, with that, uh, like when I was you know a teenager, I definitely listened to the first two albums a lot. The third one came out, loved it. Listened to the last two EPs, it's been fine. But they're a band that I continually, randomly will come back to, and I always enjoy whatever I put on. It's this weird thing where I just I don't forget that they exist, but they're not top of mind for me. But whenever they end up um, on a playlist or I see someone else talking about it, I'll always just go put an album on just because, and it usually plays all the way through. Yeah, it's. Um... Man, that's a good choice. It, it and uh, like I was telling you earlier, like it took me so many times to sort of like pick a group or a project that I wanted to talk about because every single time I thought of a good one, I would write you know a, a sort of description about it, then remove it, then come back to something else, and then so finally, this is the one that stuck around the the most. I feel um, in my heart, in my mind, in my soul. So I decided to go with this. Um, you know, if you want to go to the first album, you'll have to check out their single Stone the Crow. Um, and they also close with a song called Bury Me in Smoke, which is about eight minutes long. And it's uh, a live table of theirs. They usually close uh, the set with it. And what they'll often do um, with either that or Bury Me in Smoke 
or um, Ghosts Along the Mississippi is that um, they'll slowly start leaving the stage and then dismantling the drum kit as they keep playing the the last riff, which is super cool to watch. Um, and then, uh, you know, Down 2 has the oddly groovy, um, and the thing about Down 2 is it's Down 2 colon bustle in your hedge grow because obviously they're zip heads. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, Stained Glass Cross, the riff stack goes along the Mississippi that I was just talking about, the massive sounding New Orleans is a dying whore. Down 3, you got Three Sons, One Star, On March the Saints, and uh, I Scream. Uh, and I remember when YouTube was still nascent. No, this was before YouTube. I used to, I don't know about you, but um, I used to use IRC to download bootleg MPEGs of uh, of live shows. Yep. Yes. Okay. Yep. And uh, so I came across this one from the 90s, and it was shot somewhere in a club in the mid-90s. And uh, it was super amazing because in the middle of the set, the crowd, crowd surfs a man in a wheelchair, which I've never seen before at that point in my life. And it was the most incredible thing. That is the most incredible. Thing. I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and find the YouTube video and see if it's it's up there. But yeah, I remember just being transfixed when I was younger, being like, "Wow, this is like super intense. I've never seen someone do that before." Um, anecdotally, I was actually supposed to see them open for System of a Down in July 2002 on an Ozfest update in Montreal, but uh, Down had to cancel because Phil fucked up his neck by headbanging too much the day before. That is the real danger out there. Let's PSA time, metal artists. <laughs> I understand the the appeal of the headbang. It's been around for decades. But listen, you've got fans out there. They want to see you live. Take it easy out there. Watch your goddamn necks. <laughs> Protect your neck also, right? Like that's another thing we should probably <laughs> yes. get into. Uh, <laughs> so I actually got to see Down uh, finally in 2006 and it was like an evening with. So they they opened with a uh, like 15 or 20 minute video of themselves, which was kind of cool. It was different. It was definitely like highly edited and, and really, really nicely put together. But it's it really funny that like your opening act is a movie, you know, so that's that's fine. Um yeah, I don't know. Like, like I was saying before, like this. Whenever I think of a band that I want to listen to, they're not always top of mind necessarily, but they're definitely a band um, that I come back to continually, and I find enjoyment. Um, and a lot of their music, it's it's kind of weird that they've been with me for like twenty plus years at this point, but I'm still cool with it. They're kind of the release of their albums almost kind of reminds me of like the Deer Hunter and like oh yeah, you know, it's d- down one two and part four of yeah. this. <laughs> the EPs, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, right. It was yeah, it was it was really hard because at first I was like, oh, maybe I'll do Audio Slave because as much as I love them, I realize I don't actually spend any time listening to them. If that makes sense, like if they're on the radio, I'll listen to them, but I'll never sort of sit down and be like, today is the day I listen to an Audio Slave album. Audio Slave, like they're not an album band, at least not their like their first album. To me, you could just handpick cuts on it, and it's fine. Give me, show me how to live like a stone, um, the the highway, yeah. and maybe Shadow a, Sun, another track. Maybe, yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's and that's all you need. I respect like their album output after that. Like it was, uh, it was what, almost out of exile, and yeah, um, they became an album band after that, and then you know Soundgarden got back together. Uh, you kind of kept hoping that maybe they would come out with something else but uh so, you know never well i mean apparently there's a whole album's worth of material out there that's still like unreleased so i don't know if it's any uh, of any quality or if it's just like discarded stuff from other albums or if it's actually an album album they sat down and and, and uh, put together right and i i kind of feel like we'll never see the light of day or maybe that'll like maybe it'll emerge like some leak bootleg or some 
something like well, that. That's how the uh, so obviously that's how the civilian because they were called civilian originally. Like I remember their um, uh, first album was just uh, leaked in demo form, like uh, oh, months and months and months out before they actually put the album out, and it actually was pretty much the same, more or less. Yeah, there wasn't uh, any variation in it. No. You know, just a little, like the production was, uh, you know, tightened up a little bit. You know, mixed better, but uh, yeah. Uh, I do. I do slightly remember that. I. I don't even remember if I. I can't even remember what those mixes even sound. They were very like, flat but, sounding, uh, from what I remember. Yeah, like, like someone had yeah. recorded them off a tape or something. Yep, sounds about right. Uh, also, Rob, never lose hope. If Chinese Democracy came out, like I feel like one day all the red tape can get cleared up, and because like uh, um, Cornell's wife is currently battling Soundgarden, I think, uh, in terms of like what to do with those last set of vocals that they uh, intended to release. Um, as part of like the sort of like the posthumous album they're putting together, and and we're starting to see some of those some like posthumous releases from uh, other artists. Like uh, I I remember uh, Gord Downey uh, in one of his like final interviews said, uh, "I've got enough material to make you say, I, isn't that guy? I thought that guy was dead or something <laughs> like that." You know, <laughs> uh, you and I should probably discuss um, posthumous albums as like its own topic. There's so many out there, right? That I I feel like we could probably dig around um, and sort of uh, make a full show out of. 2016 was like the year of posthumous releases. Oh my god, yeah. Like one of my favorite Tupac albums, the the Seven Day Theory, the the Illuminati album came out after he died, right? So like I listened to that yes. a fair yeah. amount for some reason. As a uh, this is a weird memory actually. So I used to sometimes because um, I lived near my elementary school. Sometimes I'd I'd go home and have lunch with with my mom. My sister and I would do that. But sometimes we would stay at school, and uh, for some reason, uh, the lunch monitor would let this one kid in our class play that album on this like the the stereo in the corner. That's like it's cool to have those kind of teachers and and uh, you know school staff in your life, the ones that'll let you. Do <laughs> just that. don't give That's a amazing. fuck at the end of the day. That's really what it is. <laughs> I don't think it's they didn't care. I think the lunch monitor was like, "Fuck it!" Like, what do you guys want to listen to? You want to listen to this Tupac guy? Sure, why not? Sorry, sorry. Technically, that, Machiavelli, uh, aka Tupac. I apologize. Also, that's the weird thing on Spotify. I don't know if you noticed, but if you try to look up the album, it's under Machiavelli and not Tupac. It's fucked up. Come on, <laughs> like this is this is twenty fucking twenty. We can you know consolidate. You can also just put him as a featured or whatever, right? But I was just I was I remember being very annoyed when I was going through the Tupac discography um, last year and then not finding it, and then suddenly I looked up one of the songs, and sure enough, it was under Machiavelli. So, really sticking to the idea and the conceit of the album there. Listen, I understand that Wu-Tang wanted you to diversify your bonds, (laughs) but you know what? You need to consolidate your albums in 2020. That's how this has to work. I'm tired of having to search for Dave Matthews for his solo album, you know, instead of it falling under Dave Matthews' band. I'm very passionately vocal about this are you gonna start a change.org uh petition i don't know if i have that energy man i don't know <laughs> you care, if you i care have that enough energy. to talk about it but not really to sit down and think it out listen the problem is i know how to pick my battles and i know that this will not be a winning battle because maybe i'll get five fucking signatures i don't know but it's not gonna be that much it's not gonna be enough for you know a swiss company to take a look at that and say okay yeah let's fix that rob you know what is winnable though arcota challenge let us know how thomas red smells let us know how to get in contact with him yeah we need to know like (laughs) can we somehow like 
Thomas Rhett, if you're listening, I know you're not, but if you were listening, let's like, invite us to a show. We got Let's just do this. At gmail.com. Get this to Codacast at gmail.com. Listen, we can hug this out. <laughs> we can hug this out. I think it's important. 2020, we all need a hug. That's, that's just the way it is. It's 2020. Everybody needs a hug. Everybody should get a hug. And I think it starts with you, Thomas Rhett. Rob, I don't think it starts. With I don't you. think there's any better way to sort of end this segment with a plea for hugs. I think this is like a good 2020 <laughs> kind of thing to do. It's a solid. <laughs> Let us thing move to on do. then to the B side recommendation of the week. <laughs> Perfect. As always, we like to cap off all of our episodes with a B side recommendation. So that is an album um, that uh, we feel deserves more shine in the world. So, Rob, episode four, your recommendation. I'm pulling heel on you, and I'm not even going to talk about an album. I'm going to talk about a book, and it's a wow. book I've been talking to you about, <laughs> and it's uh, Rebecca Wallwork. She <laughs> she has a an installment in the 33 and the third series, and when I saw this, I was like, I'm really intrigued that anybody would write about this album. I <laughs> bought it instantly, and she chose to write about the album Hanging Tough by New Kids on the Block. Yes. Um, have you finished the book yet? <laughs> I am about halfway through. So Are you savoring every page? Is that why? I love every minute of this. Yeah, it's only 150 pages. And these are small pages, folks. If you don't know what a 33 and the third book is, they are, if you are music junkies like we are, they are the most amazing extra liner notes that you could ever want to any album. Um, and there's like hundreds of these books by uh, at this point you can find <clears throat> books on pretty much any big album you could think of they even did one for the super mario brothers soundtrack so uh they're out there folks they did one for the twin peaks soundtrack. they did yeah Fucking i haven't amazing. read that one yet but i'd like to i think the amazing thing about this book is uh she really dives into how formidable music is in your teenage years and she also tries to answer the question whether hanging tough is good. <laughs> we haven't gotten to the answer to that yet, but I applaud her for doing that. Um, I think the most amazing thing about this book is that uh, in 2015, when New Kids on the Block were going on tour, I think this was around the time they were doing stuff with the Backstreet Boys. And they had partnered with Cottonelle. And at their shows... They would recommend that the the fans went commando. <laughs> yes, that is an interesting marketing tie-in that I I don't know how that left the boardroom. To be honest with you, I don't. I were they desperate for this money? You're damn right they were. You're damn right. Uh, one of my favorite entries in this series is a book I probably own as a Canadian. It is a uh, book-length conversation about Celine Dion's Let's Talk About Love by a man named Carl Wilson. And it's a, it's basically a dissection of kitsch, which I find really interesting. So anyone out there who uh, poo-poos, and I'm trying to tie that back into what you were just saying, uh, the notion <laughs> of reading a book about Celine Dion, think about it, and then uh, definitely purchase this book and have your mind changed. It was, well, it, it was the first 33 and a third book that I ever bought, and like... It's probably the the best written in the entire series. It like takes the the album premise and brings it into a different <laughs> brings it to a different level. And like there are uh, installments in um, 
like one in the series, like uh, John. Darnielle's... I was literally about to talk about that one. Yeah, uh, what was it? Ma- Master is it Masters reality, of yeah. Reality? Yeah, by uh, Black Sabbath, and he turns it into this like kind of novel, uh, which is amazing. Uh, but uh, there are a lot of great entries into the series, and if you have never picked up a thirty-three in the third book. I highly recommend it. I love how you went all punk rock on me and decided to just like say like screw this. I'm gonna do something else. <sighs> yeah, man. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Uh, uh, my B side pick of the week is a traditional album, as per the usual guidelines of this podcast, sir. Um, <laughs> uh, they are a pop duo from Canada uh, who released this seminal album in 1998. Um, they were members of the Canadian band The Philosopher Kings, and then they put together a weird. Uh, pop rock slash dance pop album called The Hot Show. And I'm talking about the Canadian duo of Prozac. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, Rob. I've heard of Prozac. Right. I've never listened to Prozac. Uh, you should definitely. The name I, is I'm curious to see if they're on Spotify in the States, but uh, Prozac's Hot Show is definitely uh, where you want to be at. It reached uh, number eight on the Canadian charts when it came out. Um, hits like Sucks to Be You, Strange Disease, a weird cover of Wild Thing. Um, uh, yeah, it's just like of its time, and I'm very like it's a very late '90s. Um, their second album, Saturday People, has a song called the www dot never get over you, but they don't even finish it with like dot com or anything, um, and it includes the ICQ uh oh sound. <laughs> um, so yeah, Rob, tonight it's a hot show night for you, my friend. I would definitely recommend that anyone out there gives this a shot and sees where this goes. Uh, yeah, and the funny thing is like this was mostly as a joke because the idea is they're an animated duo. Um, uh, that come to life and their videos are animated and stuff. And so there's a uh, Simon and Milo one's hunky one's nerdy plays a guitar. Uh, and then they, uh, earlier, uh, last year, sorry. So, uh, fall 2019, they announced that they were finally disbanding after doing several greatest hits runs, um, throughout Canada. That's kind of sad, but like, well, let me give you an idea. This... In 2018, they toured across Canada in like pretty sizable spaces with Aqua and Wigfield. So, oh. That should tell you what's up. <laughs> that is holy shit, man. That that sounded amazing. So goddamn. What I may suggest is I may suggest putting a Philosopher Kings track like on our playlist, and then also like two Hot Show tracks to make up for your uh, infidelity about uh, listing off actual music about things. <laughs> Fine. You want you want me to recommend something? I listen to Hanging Tough, Brian. Yes, I yes, listen okay, to Hanging Tough. And you know what? I didn't hate it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So on the one end, we got your kids on the block hanging tough. We got Prozac Hot Show. Uh, luckily, we are not the arbiters of fine taste. We enjoy a large swath of things, both uh, what are considered traditionally good and bad, because we don't give a fuck here, um, clearly, about uh, anyone else's uh, feelings uh, in terms of like what we consider to be you know, objectively good and objectively bad music. Um, and I kind of like that. Yeah. Um, I like how... Uh, on the B-side recommendations, they're pretty much Canadian from your side. <laughs> I'm just trying to shine a light onto things, you know, that uh, people have probably missed. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, that's fine. I'm fine with, you know, sticking up for Canada around here. You should. Somebody needs to take up the cause, and you have, Brian. You have devoted, I th- I'm pretty sure, like, every B-side segment at this point has been devoted. Except for the first one, I think. So I did the all yes. album, the first one, which was, yeah, but I think 234 has been a, a clean sweep of Canada. Like, folks, you need to take a regional tour <laughs> of other countries through their music. And, uh, you know, I, it's only a matter of time before 
we cover the Can Rock Revolution that happened in Canada yes. in the late eighties. Uh, Rob, do me a favor, h- jump on the Hot Show bus with me. <laughs> I'm on it, man. I'm on it. I'm. I got my ticket. It's pulling up, and I'm climbing aboard. So before I forget, people can go ahead and email us their anger about the Hot Show at thecodacast at gmail dot com. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram under the handle thecoda. Uh, podcast uh rob where can people find you personally on the internet because i feel like we didn't we don't do this enough where can people find rob on the internet if you want to find me on twitter i am at your ufo guy spelled y-e-r ufo guy mm, and you can find me at my very boring handle of brian hasty h-a-s-t-i-e rob this has been episode four of the coda podcast any last words before i close things off I think you should really rename your Twitter handle to Anne Berlin Basic Bitch. <laughs> uh, uh, maybe it's a 2020 resolution. Maybe that'll be like my, my fake Twitter account that I use to sort of like troll people. I think you need it, Brian, and I think we all need it in our life. <laughs> well, I will. Uh, something to consider as uh, we continue, because it's only January, man. It's still time. It's still time. You know, uh, 2020 has a lot left to offer, and I think. Uh, Brian Hasty troll account is just, uh, in the one works. of the many things I need it's to be doing. Need. Yeah, deal. Uh, Rob, until the next time, don't forget to keep the cans on. Mm-hmm.